morning. So, this morning we were asked, have been asked to speak about um, the heart of the mystic is the title of the talk. So, <clears throat> say a few words. I think that uh, first it's important to point out that there are these two orientations to uh, spiritual life. One that I would call religious and one that I would call uh, um, experiential. Hmm? So spiritual experiential approach and a religious approach. And the former, or well, the religious approach is meant to foster the uh, spiritual experiential uh, pursuit. From a classical Hindu uh, perspective, for example, we spoke yesterday about the importance of sacred texts, revelation, and so forth. There is uh, something called the Purvimamsa and the Uttarmimamsa. Purva means prior and Uttar means after. Mimamsa means like a dissertation. So the prior, the Purva Mimamsa is a dissertation on the sacred texts that speaks about a religious orientation. The Uttar Mimamsa is a dissertation on the on the text, like the Upanishads, for example, um, that uh, fosters an experiential orientation. Therefore, the two they begin with these two statements: Atato Dharma Jignasu, Atato Brahma Jignasu. Jignasu means to inquire. So Atato means now. Now is the time to inquire about Dharma, Dharma Jignasu. The implication is, having thoroughly inquired about that and understood from a religious perspective, then, later, atata brahma jignasu. Now is the time to inquire about brahma. It means this. The orientation was, first, learn to color your human life with uh, uh, shades of God consciousness, with your human life being your center, hmm? um, and having done that, one becomes qualified to make not human life the center, but the atma, uh, the self within the the center, and its direct pursuit. So, so for example. We talked a little bit last night about different faces of the Hindu gods and the goddesses and so on. So, in one respect, these are all different uh, faces of divinity that have something to do 
with our practical everyday life. In other words, for example, we have eyes with which to see. Hmm? So in the microcosmic sense of our self, hmm, we have eyes to see, but we are dependent upon the macrocosm in the form of, for example, the sun in order for those eyes to have to function and, perform, and afford us some, some vision hmm, of the world. So you find in the, this Purva Mimamsa all these rituals for worshiping the different gods and goddesses and how to get a good son, a good daughter, how to get a good husband, how to, how to get good health, this, that, all the things that humans are concerned with. But uh, it's presented in such a way that the pursuit of those things will also foster the pursuit of something else at the same time. Because to do anything, you've got to bow to a god here and a goddess there, and, and you are acknowledging an indebtedness, a dependence that we have on the macrocosm on, on nature. And nature is then personified, if you will, in different ways. The idea being that behind nature, there is consciousness. Hmm? Um, and, well, we're consciousness, and we kind of think of ourselves as a person at the same time. So, so, so the person behind the sun, actually behind the heat and the light and the rain and the wind, and, this kind of idea, it sounds like a kind of a superstitious and facile idea that should be retired and so forth, but it's actually quite, quite interesting and profound. Um, and it's not about really some hocus-pocus uh, you know, ritual, per se, for things. It's really about starting to color your human life in such a way that you understand it's a dependent reality. Hmm? Acknowledging the dependence is some form of gratitude, this is the beginning of kind of a real giving, if you will, hmm? which enables us to grow. Because as we give, the self expands. As we take and exploit, the self really contracts. Hmm? I mean, what I mean by that is, if we live at, well, you know, Kennedy said, do not live, what did he say? Think not what, you, what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. So he's advocating there a nationalistic identification over an individual uh, identification in an expanded sense. You are the country. The country is you. Hmm? Something like that. So, in other words, if I say I'm going to... This, this is the ideal, of course. I'm going to be a politician. I'm going to make a sacrifice. <laughs> doesn't work like that. It doesn't appear, but that's the theory, right? I am going to sacrifice my personal time here, and I'm going to serve the country. Turns out he makes more money than he would otherwise, and there are contracts and so on and so forth. But in theory, this is the idea. Hmm? And so the expand the self expands. Hmm? He's rather than living selfishly just for myself. I've identified myself now as the the country is me. I'm, I'm not just, you know, so-and-so living on such-and-such such lane. I'm living in America. I'm an American. I'm part of the nation. And so that you have an expanded self. And then you get the, I'm a global citizen. Why these boundaries of countries and so forth? So as we give, the sense of self tends to expand. Hmm? And we'll get to the full idea of that when we get to mysticism. But... The idea 
in the sacred texts traditionally was that let's get people have a religious kind of orientation because they are worldly. We are an atma, but we are distracted by by the anatma, that which doesn't have an atma, <laughs> by matter. Hmm? And we're attracted to other people, but we're attracted to the material expressions of the people and so forth. So let's see how to harness that attraction that our material conditioning for lifetimes and lifetimes has a heavy influence on us. See how to, how to harness that in such a way that it can bring us out from that and acquaint us more with ourselves so the whole of one's human livelihood is colored hmm, with religious ritual. It's very beautiful actually to bow down and to the sun and to the moon and the stars and and so on. It, the, the idea is something like well if you're in your home and you flip a switch you get light. You turn a, a valve and you get water. Maybe you press a button and you get heat. Right? You go to the mailbox, what do you get there? A bill. <laughs> so there's something on the other end that has to be acknowledged. Hmm? Then I can press the button and the valve and everything works. <laughs> if I don't tend to that bill, then uh, I'm cut off, so to speak. So in a, in a, in a larger extended sense, hmm, to acknowledge our dependence upon nature in order to accomplish any particular task and and to describe nature uh, I would say poetically but but, but but I mean with that more comprehensively hmm? by positing gods and goddesses and it's not a, I don't mean it's a, by positing it's the human conjecture but the texts talk about nature in this way and I think that that really brings us closer to what, how it really, really is. It has feeling, it has consciousness behind it and so forth, and personality and, and so on. So this religious orientation is very, very beautiful, it's very profound, and um, obviously it, it can be misunderstood and then people end up just doing rituals for the things. And, uh, but the, the idea behind it was that, that one would also perform certain rituals acknowledging my dependence upon nature and then they would the rituals prescribed in the text and then they would get results they would get they would get a son you know or a daughter or whatever they wanted or something like that and so what would happen from that is they would get two things one thing was they would get the thing which is being dangled do this and you'll get the thing that you want so you go after the thing, but they also, because the thing is derived from that, they also get some faith in the texts. These are, wow, these, are, these books are, you know, have interesting knowledge here. And so as that faith grows, they look more deeply into it. And they come from a religious orientation where my human life is central, and I want to color it with a little low God consciousness um, kind of idea a, 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 a brother in, in, in spiritual life of my guru was in back in the 1920s and 30s was in Europe one of the first emissaries of 
the bhakti tradition in the Western world, and uh, the Ger- and he was alone there, and the Ger- some German Christian people invited him to a drama, a theistic drama. He went to the drama, and in the drama there was the main stage, and God was up in the balcony, and every now and then something would happen on the main stage, and God would come out of the balcony and say, "I bless you," you know, "I curse you," or something like that. And then, so then afterwards they asked him, what did you think of the drama? He said, it was very interesting. He said, but in our religion, God's not in the balcony. <laughs> He's on the main stage. He's, so I mean, there's a side to Hinduism where God's in the balcony, so to speak. This is kind of the religious orientation. And then there's the side where, where God is in the center stage. This is where we go. Then we go to the heart of mysticism to an experiential type of spirituality where we uh, pursue not our humanity per se and its improvement and development um, but the idea that we're not human hmm? that our reality transcends the limits of the human experience Humanity is a passing phase for us. We've been in other phases of life. We've tasted the world. Uh, We've been under the water. We've been in the air. We've been in so many, uh, this is called transmigration, of course, through so many uh, species of life. Consciousness is what animates matter, so wherever it's animated, we know consciousness is there, but it can only express itself relative to the vehicle that it's in, the human vehicle, as we've been speaking, is one that affords it the opportunity to, to express itself and be aware of itself. Hmm? And, and then, then it, and it, these texts of revelation are available to help sort it out. Hmm? What's been happening to me? Where I've been through so many species of life, so now I've got a human life, I can do something different that's entire, completely different than what you can do in any other species of life. You can do some of the same things, eat and sleep and have sex, but you can do something entirely different as well. Because, as I said the other day, in human life, the consciousness, which is spiritual, it's not part of nature. hmm? It's what animates nature. hmm? It's the subjective element rather than the objective element, matter being objective. So it is coming to the fore, and it needs to be tended to on its own terms. That's what the sacred text is. It's an answer from from the other side. to you which who, who are really a member of the other side. Hmm? We're like a fish out of water. We need to kind of go into the water. Hmm? Uh, matter is obviously constraining for consciousness. Hmm? So we rise above material constraints. And that's what it means to be a sadhu. Hmm? People say they may not believe in God or spiritual life for that matter. Hmm? Um, or they don't believe, let's say, that there's a life, life after death. But the mystic actually dies right in front of us. What do you say to that? What do I mean by that? Hmm? Well, what is our life? Think about it. What is your life? Well, it's this. It's him. It's her. It's my job. It's my house. It's my, so many my's that make up my sense of I. Hmm? If I take all those things away, you would say, I might as well be dead. 
That's what Arjuna was saying to Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita. And Krishna said, okay, you had to slay all of these people on the battlefield. They're all your relatives. Arjuna said, well, I mean, that's me. You're asking me to kill myself. Because I am defining myself in relation to my teacher and my, my, my friends and family members and so forth. And so you're asking me to kill myself. He said, yeah, <laughs> that's what I'm asking you to do. Your sense of self, hmm, derived from such attachments and, and false sense of proprietorship and so forth. So the mystic actually performs a suicide, so to speak. This is that, that ego we were talking about, right? That self. He kills. Now, my question to you is, is if you kill that self, hmm, is, there any more, is there any more comprehensive death than that? Physical death, that is enough, nothing in comparison. Hmm? If I die right before you to all the things that were my life, hmm? and in the context of that, I'm found to have risen above the carnal drives and necessities that are part of the makeup of everyone, above anger, above lust, above greed, and so forth, how could you not say that that was supernatural? You, you follow what I'm saying? The natural world means our animality. That's what it means. We are humans. We have an animality, kind of a side to us that goes towards nature, and we're realizing there's a side of us that goes towards the divine, or there's more. We sense there's more to us than what meets the eye and the mind. We're looking for the more. We're looking for it in things that aren't doing it for us, but the teaching is, look to yourself, you're the more. Hmm? You are the more. And that's coming to the fore, as I say, in human life. So, if we move on the basis of the, the, what humanity, our human experience affords us, this opportunity to go in the direction of our spirituality rather than our animality, for all intents and purposes, we can demonstrate that a person can retire their animality. Hmm? Now, the animality, again, is the forces of nature, so to speak. So, one can transcend greed, lust, uh, and they're not pleasant things to experience. Um, envy, jealousy, anger, and so on. This person has become supernatural. Yes, their body will die, but they've already died in a more significant way than just a biological uh, breakdown of an organism hmm? because they're not identified with the organism that's breaking down, the, what's part of the animality. Hmm? The proof that they're not identified with is they, don't succ- they're not, they don't, don't succumb to the animal drives and so forth. Hmm? And yes, it, it, will, it, it will die, the organism, but they're obviously different from it hmm? for all intents and purposes. No, they can't stop it from dying. That's the nature of all biological organisms. The world, you know, comes and goes. It's endlessly mutable. It's constantly changing shapes and so on and so forth. Hmm? You understand? <laughs> so you may not believe in the supernatural. But we can, we can, we can, in a, in, a, in a sense, prove it to you in this way. This is the mystic's life. So moving from a religious orientation 
to a spiritual, experiential orientation is to move to the heart, if you will, of the mystic. And there we find, and you know, we have to do this relative to our eligibility. So, you know, we should have good guidance and we have our animality and so forth and it's drawing on us and what ways can we engage that such that it will bring us in this direction and so forth and and so on. I, I said as I began that traditionally there's these two orientations and one is meant to foster the other, right? The religious orientation meant to foster the spiritual experiential orientation in its direct pursuit. But there's another way in which we can become engaged in the spiritual pursuit directly, and that is by sadhu sangha. That's the shortcut. Hmm? Because if we meet somebody who's, who's, who's situated there, that have great power and influence on us. Hmm? And we can immediately pursue that. Now he'll teach us or she will teach us how to pursue that according to our eligibility. Hmm? He's not going to say, all right, so now you've understood, just sit down, meditate, don't do anything else. You'd say, okay, <laughs> just sit and look at the blank wall now. Or, or now you've understood, thinking is not how you know, but by stopping from thinking you will know. Yes, I've understood, now you stop thinking. Anything else? <laughs> you see, that won't be very helpful to us. So he or she, the teacher, has to know our eligibility also, even while qualifying us by his or her association for being interested in, an interest perked in, and, and interested in pursuing this experiential spirituality. Hmm? Now, how to do it practically. Hmm? We might be successful. Hmm? So, so at any rate, somehow or other, we, one way or the other, we move from a, like a lot of people today will say, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. That's kind of what I'm talking about, but whether they really understand it, everybody, I, I, I'm not sure. And what, one of the reasons they say that, of course, is just because, while I said earlier, the religious orientation is meant to foster the mystic orientation, that doesn't always happen because people don't apply themselves properly to the religious orientation and then we get religious fundamentalism, superstition and, and war in the name of religion and so on and so forth. So understandably people become like, uh, I'm not interested in religion. But a good number of people think, in the majority of us, I'm interested in some, something spiritual. I do, do still sense there's something more to me and to life and there's meaning and purpose and so forth. You have to understand, without if there's nothing supernatural, I say that you are supernatural, if that wasn't the fact, the world would have no meaning whatsoever. I, I hope you all understand that. It would have no value, no meaning, only just imagined values on the part of something that has no meaning itself. I wonder about these debates sometimes between theism and atheism. I think the atheist, why are you bothering to debate? You know, it has no meaning by your own theory. Anyway, hmm? No, there is something supernatural. That's you. You are supernatural. Hmm? And your source. So we're the spark, so to speak, of the fire and so on. So to have a mystical uh, and a spiritual experiential orientation in life, this is very nice because there is the moral aspect 
of life and religious codes and so forth. These things, of course, are a moving goalpost. They're supposed to be principles that turn into laws relative to time and circumstance. Hmm? You know, 5,000 years ago, it might not have been a morally um, wrong to cut down a tree. Now it's starting to get to the point where you should be put in jail for cutting down a tree. <laughs> so things change. Hmm? And so moral laws and ethical, what constitutes ethical living, yama niyama, that might be, that is relative to some time and circumstance adjustment. Hmm? Um, but that there are moral principles. These are the moral principles. We're going back kind of the religious side of the kind of things that are meant to kind of harness our animality a little bit. Hmm? You know, in other words, we don't just go jump on somebody in the mall because we like them, you know. <laughs> Everybody says in human society, something should be regulated <laughs> on some level and so forth. So, <laughs> so uh, a system for doing that. But at any rate, one way or the other, we come to have an interest in Brahmajignasu, inquiring about the Atma, about Brahman, about the nature of consciousness, and so forth. We've come a long ways to, to make such an inquiry, to have such interest. So it's an honor to be you know, in the in association of all of you who have that kind of interest. It's, it's rare. Don't wait for everybody else to jump on board. <laughs> That's probably not going to happen. <laughs> But uh, you have some sangha amongst one another, some friendship here amongst those who are in the, the course and so forth. And, you know, that's a good something to... You have something very important in common. And you can get strength from one another, you know, over time to uh, continue to pursue these uh, yoga as much as it's meaningful for you and as much as whatever help I've been in the course here by speaking about it and perhaps a deeper philosophical way, how to, you know, carry through on that and pursue that. Um, association, help from our friend, a little help from our friends, that's uh, useful. Hmm? So, <laughs> so um, then, where does this mystic orientation end up? Obviously, there are different mystics from different cultures. This has been touched on in our discussions to some extent. And... Um, I think there are perhaps it could it seems like there's a maze out there, but I think it could be boiled down to a pretty clear demarcation um, and I would say that that there are those who pursue eternal being and they love to be, and there are those who pursue eternal loving and they be to love. Exist to love those who pursue eternal existence, and those who pursue uh, the idea of uh, those who love to exist, those who exist to love. These are two orientations to to transcendental or spiritual life, in very in a very basic sense. Let's take um, let's take the Buddha. We talked about the Buddha. Hmm? The Buddha's stated goal and stated practice is to end suffering. Hmm? He didn't really talk beyond that. Here's a means to end suffering. Do it and... He doesn't say much more than that. Hmm? Now, 
at the same time, one of the, the means, the noble path, if you will, of the Buddha, to attain that end of suffering was, is the practice of kindness, jubadaya, uh, compassion, and so on and so forth. Hmm? So there is a heart to that. That's the form it, sh- it takes. Hmm? Um, when we get to the, arguably to the end result, let's say the sadhi, the goal of Buddhism, then um, there are those who say, I don't want to go to the end. In Buddhism, like in Tibetan Buddhism in particular, which is the most popular form of Buddhism, um, at least numerically, and of course the Dalai Lama is a statesman, so he gets a bit of publicity. Um, And he has a cause, a bleeding heart cause, you know, for Tibet and the exploitation of the Chinese and so forth and so on. And he very much presses on and advocates compassion, right? This is pretty hard to argue with, that we should be compassionate and so on. Hmm? But within the Tibetan school, then we have this group, if you will, that doesn't want to go to the end of Buddhism. They want to be the Bodhisattva. You've heard the term? Bodhisattva? The Bodhisattva is one who vows to stay in the world, hmm? teaching compassion until everybody in the world is liberated. And that'll never happen. <laughs> There's no, first of all, there's no limit to who's in the world. That's just a finite idea. There's unlimited entities, uh, according to the Vedanta. And Buddhism, of course, comes from Hinduism, as you may know. Hmm. So, so they, they want to remain in the heart, if you will, aspect of the mysticism of Buddhism. Because if you go beyond that, there's no more compassion. Huh? Nirvan, it means nirvan, to extinguish. Hmm? To extinguish. So it's, it's, there's, nothing, there's no sense of the world and people needing compassion and so forth. And so on. It's a very, it's a contentless kind of, some kind of uh, experience. It's really. I'm not I'm just telling what the Buddha taught, and it's very profound and interesting. End suffering. Do it by acts of kindness. Now, arguably, what's really happening? Buddhism comes out of a certain section of the of, of Hinduism. Then there there's an argument between Hinduism and Buddhism, a mystical argument. Amongst mystics, they have differences of opinions. Which don't turn to fighting and so forth, but they're interesting <laughs> debates and whatnot. So there are those that say there is a self. Buddhism says there is no self. Hmm? The self is the problem. If we look carefully at the Buddhism, I think we can argue well that Buddhism is speaking so strongly about doing away with the conventional self, that false ego, hmm? that he doesn't want to complicate the subject by saying there's also a real ego. Well, and it starts to get confusing for some. Hmm? It's just killed self. Hmm? But arguably, there is a self. There is consciousness. Hmm? And, and we are that. And that's where the, 
the, the, the, the, the Dwaitans, Advaitans, we're going to Hinduism now, the sect, the sect of mystics, the Advaita. Advaita means non-different. The non-difference. They say that ultimate reality is one. There's no difference. There's no you or me. We're all just one. There's one soul. Buddha says, let's not talk about the soul. What to speak of God. That's irrelevant. What's relevant is we're suffering. Hmm? Let's tend to the suffering. Interesting how he goes about tendering to the suffering, at least from the Tibetan point of view. Being kind to others. Hmm? That means you're seeing the others as yourself. Hmm? So you're putting out their suffering. You're starting to identify with everyone. Hmm? And you're getting to the ground of being. And you're no longer seeing Buddhists and Hindus and men and women and Indians and Chinese and Americans. You're seeing that which had its ground, to use Chardin's uh, phrase, the ground of being, and we're standing on it. Hmm? And we all have something in common here. And what's happening is you're actually coming to the platform where you could be universally compassionate because you don't see any difference between yourself and anyone else. And uh, so this is a richness that comes out of meditation. A fellow asked Daniel Dennett, who's a, who's a materialistic philosopher, uh, who thinks that consciousness is, is, doesn't really exist. A philosophy gone, <clears throat> gone wild. Uh, but uh, he asked another fellow uh, who, that, that uh, what's with all this, you know, the, the, the mystics and the meditation and the guy sitting in the cave forever? I mean, whatever come, came out of that? Any, what do you, I mean, practically, it's interesting ideas. That, what, what practically comes out of that? Hmm? Well, what comes out of that is this ability to actually be compassionate. In other, words, I could say, in other words, I could say to you, you should be compassionate. You have to practice that. Hmm? Because in your practical, practical reality, you see people are different, and it's a problem. Hmm? And you've got to kind of practice being compassionate. But when you go deeply within and you actually st- stand on the ground of being, then it's not a problem to be. You, you, this universal compassion arises very naturally. Hmm? That's something practical. I mean, you know, that would bring world peace. How about that? World peace. Well, you know, it's impractical. It's only one guy. Who's, who's going to do that? Well, yeah, that's why there's going to be war in the world. No matter what else you do, it's not going to end. You can be sure of that. Hmm? You may say, well, that's never going to work. Nobody's, everybody's not going to sit and meditate, Swami. You say, well, then there's going to be war in the world forever on one level or another. And you're at war with your, yourself. Your body's at war with you. Your mind is at war with you. Hmm? No, by coming to, standing on the ground of being and not seeing it. And this is practical, I mean, not seeing black, white, American, Indian, but seeing, seeing that but more. We see that, but more, beyond that. Hmm? And we're living in that. We're identifying with that. This is the basic, what I would say, heart of the mystic. Very valuable. Hmm? Compassion. Hmm? 
Um, so, I've, now I've talked about the Buddha and I've talked about the Advaitins a little bit. They have something, I would say, really, if you look closely at them, in common. Nowadays, a lot of them say, ah, we're just saying the same thing in different ways anyway. Hmm? Whether there's Atma or no Atma, we're saying end suffering and you know, live forever and be compassionate and so forth. So, okay. They're both, in one sense, what I would say, are uh, schools of mysticism that um, advocate loving to be instead of loving to exist rather than existing to love. I'm not saying which is better. You can just add for yourself. But they love to exist. In other words, material existence is fleeting. You know, I'm a human being from such and such. That's a fleeting sense of existence. It's just not going to fly for very long. We're all living on death row in terms of that sense of existence. That's a fact. Hmm? That's troublesome. Hmm? We're trying to do something about it, but it will not work. Yoga is for doing something about it that, such that it will work. Hmm? And so, it's not working. This is the realization of the mystic in, in these schools that love to exist. It's not working. I want to exist in an enduring way. Hmm? And so this is my focus. And therefore, I undergo certain practices and I extinguish the suffering. Hmm? I stand on the ground of being. And my bliss, that means my love and my knowledge, is I know that I exist and I love to exist. Hmm? I'm loving it and I don't have to do anything else. Hmm? And I'm just, you don't even have to move. In other words, they would say, if you're happy, why move? If you're full, then why move? And if you're everywhere, where can you move? So, there's nothing more to say. There's nothing to do. And sometimes we approach those teachers and they say, there's nothing to do. There's nothing to say. And we say, how do we become enlightened? They say, that is the problem. You are enlightened. You think you have to become these kind of things and so forth. <laughs> Some people can fake that pretty good too. But, um, but in a classical sense, they love to exist. Hmm? It's a real possibility of attaining such a status. It's really, it's really becoming acquainted with the reality that you exist and nothing, you're not going to die and experiencing it. So it's blissful. It's blissful in this way. Man. Like let's say you found out, you went to the doctor said you've got terminal cancer, you've got six months to live. That would be pretty stressful. Then the doctor calls us, oh sorry, we were looking at somebody else's scan. <laughs> it's not, you just told all your friends and everything happened. Oh God, you know. <laughs> so you found, oh man, I'm feeling blissful. <laughs> That's, whoa. <sighs> so this, their bliss, their love, their ananda, hmm, is tied to their sat, the fact that they know the extent to which they exist. If you knew the extent to which you existed, you'd have no fear. You'd have no anxiety. 
We don't know, we don't understand, we don't realize the extent to which we exist. Therefore, we're knowingly or unknowingly struggling to exist. Busy to do things, pay the rent, to increase, increase the income, and so forth. It's all a waste of time in one sense, but it's not a waste of time if you need to do it in the context of spiritual practice to wean yourself from it as you grow in realization and so forth. But such, so such attainment is possible. Hmm? The heart, then, of this kind of mystic is, ah, I love to exist. It's, I've, I'm existing. I mean, it's blissful. It, but it's, the bliss is kind of a relief. Hmm? Um, so, now we go to, for example, the Bhakti school. This is another school. So, the school I've just talked about, the two of them, the Advaitins, the Buddhists, these are paths of knowledge. Therefore, usually the term is used enlightenment. The Buddhists seek enlightenment. The Advaitins, they seek enlightenment. Enlightenment, mean, it, it means knowledge. These are paths of knowledge. What is the knowledge? The knowledge of the knowing that I exist and knowing what is non-existence, what is here today and gone tomorrow, and having risen above that, seen through that. And this is not just an intellectual affair. I mean, this is, theoretically, it's an intellectual affair, but then there are practices to arrive at that status and so forth and, and to sit peacefully and feel and know, well, there's nowhere to go. Hmm? and so forth. And so they reason, as I said, well, if you're full, why, why, why move? Hmm? It's pretty good reasoning. Hmm? These are schools of knowledge. What I mean is knowledge, and they say it themselves, and by enlightenment, buddhi, and so Buddha means enlightenment. Hmm? Their end, their sadhya, their goal is knowledge. Therefore, the, the path is to do away with ignorance. Hmm? That's the path, to do away with ignorance. Therefore, you find these persons ultimately advocating bairagya, detachment, renunciation, giving things up, hmm? living to yourself, and so forth. Hmm? By letting go of things, hmm? then you go from negative numbers of debt that you collected by acquiring those things to zero. If I move from negative numbers, which means like karmic implication, I have debts, I've taken from the environment, now I owe, hmm? I can't get out. Hmm? So by spiritual practice, if I meet that kind of mystic, I'll go from negative numbers to zero. I mean, the Buddha says it himself. I mean, zero has a positive connotation, if you follow me, in relation to negative numbers. It's like, whew, all of that, the negative numbers are done. I'm at, at ground level here. Hmm? So again, you know, why move? Hmm? His heart is full, loving to exist. He doesn't have a lot or she doesn't have a lot to say to people other than exist. You are. Hmm? And so, forth. so a lot of these types of teachers, they don't seem to have a lot to say, but they don't feel there is a lot to say. Hmm? In one sense, they're right. Hmm? Now in the we go to another kind of path. And I said it kind of boils down, if you look at all these different mystic traditions, these two ideas, a school of knowledge, and then the other is a school of love. Hmm? Therefore, in the bhakti tradition, for example, we don't usually refer to the goal as enlightenment. We use a different word. 
prem. Prem means love. Hmm? So it's, the goal is love. What is the means? The means, the, the way is love. The way is love. The goal is love. Hmm? Love is a love is a love. It's like a mango is a mango is a mango, whether it's, a, you know, it's green or it's yellow or it turns red and it's ripe. Hmm? So we may have bhakti, immature bhakti, Hmm? Mm, mm, blossoming ecstatic bhakti and mature bhakti hmm? love of God hmm? so here we find a path there's also a heart but the heart starts to get really kind of picks up and pumping from zero onward in, in a sense because it's talking about positive numbers we went from negative numbers to zero Bhakti is talking about, well, it poses the question, it's an interesting one, are there any positive numbers? In other words, does transcendence culminate merely in eradicating ignorance? Hmm? Is, is, is enlightenment, in its full sense of the term, merely the antithesis of ignorance? Uh, just remove the ignorance and we're finished. Or is there anything, is there any movement in transcendence? We already said, well, if you're everywhere, how can you move? And so forth. What's to talk about? And so forth. The idea is this, that if you're full, you may have a necessity to move nonetheless. You may have a necessity to celebrate the fullness. I'm full, and, and to dance and so forth. This is an example to illustrate the idea of what we call Leela. We have Leela, we have Karma. They look similar, but they're very different. Karma is movement out of material necessity, perceived necessity, as a result of identifying with my bodily and mental needs and being chased by them. Hmm? I'm being chased by the demands of my mind and the demands of my body and they don't always agree even my body doesn't my stomach says eat so this Udhara the urge of the belly I, I tend, tend to that through the tongue of course and then the body the stomach says enough but the tongue says more hmm? <laughs> this is the problem hmm? so these are not good masters we're slaving for the for the masters of the senses and the demands of the mind and it's really like quicksand. The more we move, the more we go down. We need a Tarzan to come in and hang onto the rope and pull us out, so to speak. Hmm? But having gotten out, is there any movement now that won't take me down? Hmm? Movement on the firm ground, something like that. This is what Bhakti is talking about, actually. It's talking about getting to ground zero and then let's see what's, let's see from there. Hmm? something like that but getting to ground zero in the context of pursuing theoretically the movement in transcendence or lila so lila while karma is movement out of necessity perceived necessity hmm? lila is movement not out of necessity but just out of joy hmm? has just joy has a movement ananda has a movement. Love is moving. 
Love is reciprocal. Love is a unity, as we said the other day, but it's also one. That's pretty interesting. How can it be one and different? If I love you, if you and I are in love, then you and I become we. You didn't disappear, and I didn't disappear. I took your heart and made it mine. You took my heart and made it yours. We're both there, but we're very different than when it was, when it was just you and me. We are we. This is a union with Brahman that's everywhere, the absolute, but it's a dynamic kind of a union rather than a static union in which my individuality disappears and I'm just identified with the one peacefully. It's to, it's, this is, we're speaking about a, 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 a discipline, a practice, a school where there's, the, which posits the possibility of reciprocal dealings with the absolute and movement in the absolute, which is called lila, which is a different kind of movement, as I say. Hmm? So, this then, you, the heart of the mystic in the bhakti school, it, arguably it, it develops a little more than in the school of the gyan, but it, it, that's up to you to decide, or anybody to decide, which one is more interesting or attractive to them, which more appealing. Hmm? Everyone has their, their, their destiny. Obviously, I have my preferences, <laughs> and I can speak, you know, compellingly about it. <laughs> uh, uh, but I want to say that the zero, the positive zero, is included in the concept of Leela, but something more. Hmm? Brahman is everywhere. The absolute is everywhere. You're part of that. You can identify with that. The idea of Brahman moving really becomes, the head starts spinning. If something's everywhere, how can it move? We say, that is what we call Leela. That is play. Hmm? That which is everywhere plays. Hmm? And play is what we do when we do what we really want to do. Do you understand? (laughs) When we when we do what we really want, when, we, when we're real, we play. Hmm? Everything else is, we're just working towards being able to, to be our real self. Hmm? Now, we've chanted the name of Krishna, so it's appropriate to bring, bring him up here in this connection because Krishna means that face of divinity, of Brahman everywhere, that is moving. Hmm? And the movement is depicted by the mystics, experienced by the mystics as dancing. He is Nietzsche's God that he was looking for. If there was a God, he said he'd be a dancer. Hmm? That is is Krishna, please. Hmm? Dancing and moving. And what is causing this movement? What is causing that which is everywhere to move? How is it possible? Hmm? That is the very power of bhakti itself. That is, the, that is the power of love. You see, love has the power to uh, resolve contradictions. That's our practical experience. If I love you, your faults become ornaments. Isn't it? Hmm? What everyone is else says, that's just our problem. I, say, I think that's kind of nice. You know? <laughs> uh, there's a saying, mother named her blind son you know, blind eyes are, you know, you need to put sunglasses on them. They don't, you know, they don't look very pretty. But mother 
had a son who was born blind and she named him Lotus Eyes, Padmalochan. I mean, she was blind. Do you understand? Out of motherly affection. How beautiful he is. Lotus Eyes. Everybody's looking at Lotus Eyes. He's blind. <laughs> you, know, you know, she's not in reality. No. <laughs> there's, a, there's more to reality than an a, 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 a outside-of-the-jar analysis of what it tastes like inside the honey jar. Hmm? Do you understand? <laughs> so love is this integration with, uh, the, the, with the absolute in, the, in, in a yogic path that bhakti speaks about. That, and it has power. This bhakti comes from Bhagwan itself. Hmm? Bhagwan Krishna is Brahman, which is Satchit Ananda, Eternality, knowledge, bliss, condensed. It's condensed. Satchit Ananda, hmm, Sandrat, it's condensed. It, 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 you think, well, wait a minute now. Form is limiting. Formless sounds like unlimited. Hmm? But then again, excuse me. The form of this cup has not limited my capacity to drink the water, has it? It's expanded my capacity to drink the water. You just poured the water on the floor. So the form can facilitate also. The idea of the, the, the artist has an ideal. Which is more? The ideal inside the artist's mind, or when he puts it to the canvas hmm? and gives it a shape. When the artist gives shape to his feeling, to his inspiration, when the musician gives shape to the notes that he actually sees that other people can't see, hmm? is that limiting his musical expression or is that facilitating it? So forth. So. Krishna, the idea of Krishna theologically is Brahman under the influence of bhakti. Those who approach ultimate reality with love. Therefore, the example is sometimes given. You've seen Krishna with those milkmaidens and so forth and Radha and so forth. The idea is if a young girl falls in love with a young boy, you can't stop it. The more you put obstacles in front of them, like, he's not from the right side of town, dear. You know, no, yeah. She's out the door, out the back door, through the window. You know, that nothing will get in the way. The more you try to put something in the way, the more it goes. So approaching yoga, approaching the goal of yoga, approaching the Ishwar, who the sutras say we should do, you know, pranidam to, this is the, really the sum and substance of yoga, like I saw, talked about yesterday, with that kind of a passion. Hmm? That causes that which is everywhere. To move. Love has the power to resolve such contradictions. Hmm? And Brahman starts to dance. It's not something that begins at somewhere in time. Hmm? It's the beginning of everything. Hmm? That dance between Bhakti hmm, and Bhagawan, hmm? between Radha and Krishna, we'll take the place of, uh, of uh, uh, follow the lead of Radha. We'll be the devotee. Hmm? And Krishna is the object of devotion. 
and there's a dance between the two. This is the this is this is primal. Uh, the non-movement is a lesser phase of that absolute, so to speak. Hmm? Because, well, if God is Brahman everywhere and so forth, that's okay. But you know, sometimes, like if I was God, I want to be myself sometimes too. You know, get off the throne and just you know be like everybody else that's also my the spark and so forth krishna is the is the is the face if you will of the absolute that's getting close to everybody hmm? and relating and so it's very these are complex theological ideas but uh, I'm trying to give some some idea for understanding them so overall but the point is the path of bhakti of love hmm? The bhakti has the power to make, to make such movement of the absolute and such for reciprocal dealings in transcendence. And that movement that constitutes love and a transcendental relationship, if you will, with the absolute that, that, that then expresses itself in lila, hmm? Hmm. that is where arguably we could really find something very deep in terms of the heart of the mystic because compassion for the worldly people is included in that but now the heart is beating in transcendence in other words that person that transcendentalist is existing to love existing to be in a relationship with the absolute he's not just loving to exist I'm not worrying about that Hmm? I tried relationships they didn't work Hmm. it's great being single something like that you know (laughs) So I'll just be knowledgeable of how bad relationships can be, and I'll we'll just let rest with that forever. But in bhakti, we just we just can't give it up. We think at the heart of existence must be love, not just knowledge. Hmm? It must be wise love, no doubt. Hmm? So the wisdom of the full zero is there. Hmm? But we cannot. We, can, we we are the type of people who cannot settle for it. it's just knowledge, and all this love that we pursue that's all just delusion. It has no it has no uh, relationship to my actual being. Hmm? I realize I'm superficially engaged in the pursuit of love in relation to material things, and that's a folly. What I call love may be lust half the time, and so forth. But but is there no like underlying uh, tie? to my reality that, 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 that the whole world is running after, everyone's running after love, that has no uh, uh, connection with, with my reality? How is it the whole... In other words, I'm looking at the whole world as kind of like off on tilt, hmm? but if it's on tilt, then we just got to you know, straighten it up, something like that. So we're all pursuing love. We're like looking at it in the wrong, the wrong way, in the wrong place, without wisdom of what we're looking at. Hmm? You know, I mean, a tiger loves a young girl in the forest, you can bet. Tender. Hmm? (laughs) You know, a young boy may love the young girl. He's got a different idea. The sadhu, the sage, loves the young girl too. There's all a different perspective on it, right? Hmm? Hmm? We need to come to the sagely perspective. Hmm? Uh, then we can pursue wise love, hmm? but but the pursuit that the pursuit of love is folly. We cannot we cannot 
we cannot identify with that. We identify with ending, ending the suffering. We think that's important. Stop exploiting, stop taking. But stop from taking is not the whole face of love. Hmm? If I say, I love everybody, I don't steal. What are you talking about? You know, okay. You don't steal, you don't exploit. You don't take, I mean, there's a little more to it than that. So in bhakti, this is, this is, uh, this is uh, the goal is loving, the way is loving. Hmm? And we think that the way Hmm? is that the, the goal becomes subordinate to the way almost. Hmm? Brahman becomes subordinate to the love. That's what we mean by Krishna. Capturing the whole in this way. Not with the fist of your intelligence, but with your heart. Hmm? It becomes charmed and starts to move. That is called Leela. So these are a few words anyway about the heart of mysticism from different perspectives. Any question? Yes. This is the most responsible idea that I'm talking about. Hmm? Yeah, okay. So, okay. <laughs> this is to be fully responsible. Now, to be fully responsible, how free are you to forego other lesser responsibilities hmm? that you have? That depends on your eligibility. So you would, you, we should have guidance in that regard. Am I free to forego a particular material responsibility on the basis of my spiritual pursuit will depend upon how developed I am in that spiritual pursuit and how as a result of foregoing the responsibility materially hmm, I can compensate for that in a bigger way by my spiritual growth that it will foster because you know it's this is a this is a ground uh, what do they call it a um, grassroots movement here what we're talking about spiritual life is a grassroots movement so if one person by foregoing any number of responsibilities, can actually effectively use that same energy to grow spiritually. We think the world has grown from that much more than by that person's attending to a particular responsibility. And, and the universe will take care of that other lesser responsibility. Hmm? I mean, you've got a lot of responsibilities, I'm sure, but if you die today, somehow it would work out. Well, I was thinking of it It is. It is. It's not mine. It's not yours. Yeah. If we have knowledge, we have some responsibility to share it. That's true. Definitely. I mean, I'm, I'm not. And if, I'm not evangelical, but. You come here to play. Yeah, it's fun. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You got it. Okay, so those two things merge up together when you're there. Yeah. 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 That's, very nice point. Yeah. Okay, yes. Um, I really like what you're saying about uh, Lila and Karma. Lila. Lila. Yeah. Um, how Karma is like you're working because you have to, you know, something has to be fulfilled because of past actions. I mean, Karma is just a word that's very common in our Western culture. Mm-hmm. Kind of like Zen, everybody uses the word Zen. Yeah. Everybody uses it, but maybe they don't fully understand what it means. Um, and I was reading this book about how um, um, you have to learn the art of working without a karma. Mm-hmm. And so you hear a lot about um, 
not doing bad actions, so you don't have to pay for these, you know, later, you know, bad karma later. Mm -hmm. But um, we're actually trying to also not accrue good karma as well, but you don't really ever hear about that side of it. So I was wondering yeah. um, if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, that's interesting. So in Christianity, they have a question that, that if God is all good, how could he create a world where there's, where there's suffering and evil? In Hinduism, there is no creation. It is what it is. Everything's always been there and always will. Um, that's a whole other discussion. But, uh, but, um, but from the Hindu perspective, as you're pointing out, the good is also bad. <laughs> so <laughs> the good is also bad. Hmm? And why is it bad? It's only relatively good, and it's absolutely bad because it's binding. Hmm? It's, in other words, we do something. Let's say, let's say we're in a world where we have to undergo birth and death repeatedly as long as we don't figure the whole thing out. Hmm? In other words, we plug ourselves in materially, to, and then we get reactions, and those causes take birth again, and so on and so forth. So we're in this circle of samsara. Hmm? Um, and so good acts will keep you in the circle also hmm? might keep you in the upper rim but you're, you're still going around hmm? and is there any chance that you could come down a little bit you know, everybody can't be good all the time especially especially just by, by the moral force it's very difficult to do all good acts just by moral force which means by some sense of moral obligation uh, and so forth Whereas, if we actually grow within spiritually and start to transcend the limits of our mortality, then it's very easy to become good, to be good in, in the highest sense. Hmm? Um, so, anyway, yeah, people um, generally think of karma in a popular sense of doing, wanting good karma and not wanting bad karma. I, I would say that, you know, this is the whole problem of material life. We want to avoid suffering and we want to foster enjoyment. Hmm? That's how material life works. And both ends of the spectrum are very frustrating because when I pursue enjoyment, if, if you go one side or the other, you end up on the other. In other words, if you pursue, I'm only going to pursue things that are going to make me happy, I'm going after those things and they don't make you happy. And then you start giving them up, and now you're on the other side. I want to give these things up, and then you give anything, and then you start to come around. So it's just going around and around between what we call boga and tiag. I'm going to enjoy it, and then I'm going to give it up. I want it really bad. I bought it. Now it's broken. I owe it. Oh, I owe money for it. Ugh, I want to get rid of it. So it's just like going back and forth like this, back and forth. Hmm? Both focuses are very worldly. One wants to give up the world, so to speak. One wants to exploit the world. Hmm? Bhakti comes in the middle. It's like not exploitation and not renunciation, it's dedication. Hmm? And the dedication is to the other side, to the source of the world and so forth. Um, so in the context of bhakti, we will give things up because they're not favorable to bhakti. Not, we don't just give it up for the sake of giving it up. But um, let's say I love you and then I find out something you don't like. Well, I'm not gonna, then I'm not going to like it because you don't like it. Hmm? something like that. Hmm? Or I'm not going to offer it to you because you don't want it. Hmm? 
So therefore I have no interest in it because I only want to love you. I only want to give you things that you only want to please you. So I find out there's something I do that doesn't please you. Well, I want to give that up. I'm not giving it up just for the sake of giving it up. I'm loving. In the context of that, some things will be left behind, something like that. Hmm? And some things will be accepted also. Maybe things I don't like, but you like them. So now I have to like them. Hmm? No problem. Hmm? I have no problem with that hmm? because I love you. <laughs> you see? So, see, in bhakti, what I'm saying is you've avoided these two sides. If bhakti is love and, and, I, and my only preoccupation is to love and serve you, it doesn't matter to me if as a result of serving you, problems arise for me. Hmm? It doesn't matter because that's, I'm not concerned with, I'm only concerned with loving you. And if in the context of loving you, good things come to me, well, it doesn't matter either. Okay. Hmm? It's not my interest. So you've solved the kind of the problem in a, in a, in a dynamic way in the context of bhakti. Hmm? Otherwise, in material, that, that's, that's a little hard to embrace because we're saying, well, what do you get from bhakti? You just get bhakti. <laughs> oh, is that all? <laughs> therefore, therefore, we find there's a nice thing. Mama janmani janmani bhakti Mama janmani janmani. I don't care. Birth after birth. Yeah, I can keep, keep taking birth. Birth after birth doesn't matter to me. I just want bhakti. Hmm? That person has transcended birth and death. You understand? So birth and death, to have to take birth again, and where, and who, and sort it all out again. I mean, it wouldn't be bad being a kid again if we had all our knowledge with us, but to start all over again from scratch, it's not like a great idea. <laughs> it doesn't sound good. Where we would go, and, and so... So, you know, you, you, birth and then death, are not, not properly understood, these are problems. But for a devotee, a mature devotee, there's no problem whatsoever. It has no bearing whatsoever. Hmm? And you have some yogi really trying to get out of the world. Hmm? Controlling the senses, cutting off the breath arian. Hmm, I won't take anything. If I take, I'll have to give back, and so forth. And I slow my heart beat down once a month. <laughs> it's actually, you know, it's impressive on some level, but on another level, hmm, the devotee solves the problem without all that, uh, such, a, <laughs> such an ordeal. Hmm? If only wants to love. If it's pleasing to Krishna, I do that, no problem. I have to take birth again to please Krishna. That's not a problem. But to have that kind of interest, you see, and that kind of understanding. Hmm? What do you get for your service? You get more service. See, it's, it's really, what I'm really talking about is understanding the fact that we uh, speak about in common English parlance, but don't really understand the fact that giving is the getting. Hmm? As much as we attach getting to the giving, we're not really giving. Hmm? And we cannot really give fully unless we find a center to give to. Let's say I love you and I want to give completely to you. Well, what are you? What am I? I mean, you're going to die. How can I? I'm stuck. I wanted to give everything to you and then you disappeared. Hmm? So I, I had the right intention. I wanted to love unconditionally, but I reposed my love in an object that was conditional. It was here today and it was gone tomorrow. Problem. So I cannot realize my desire to give 
in a full sense of the term, unconditionally, unless I can find the center that can take fully. Hmm? That's what it meant by the two syllables Krishna, the center. That's why Krishna is depicted by the mystics as being an enjoyer. Hmm? He's not like nailed on the cross like Jesus, suffering. That's another manifestation of divinity in sacrifice and so forth. Krishna's just hanging out, hmm? dancing with uh, milkmaidens, playing his flute, herding cows, and stealing food from the neighbors and all kinds of, you know. This is Leela. If God steals, that must be play. He owns everything. You know? So, so what's being depicted here in this is the center. Hmm? The taker. It starts to sound anonymous. There's a cent, ominous. There's a center. There's a taker. Uh, but if we, if if it actually, if he actually, if this is actually depicting the center, how will we know that by giving to that center, that which is given is redistributed in a way that it would not be possible if that giving was given off center. In other words, let's take my body. Let's call the center my stomach, hmm? my hand, my feet. With my hand and my head, I have to think, now's the planting season, acquire a seed, put it in the ground with my legs, and at a certain point I have to take it and carry it somewhere else, maybe transplant it. I have to water it. Hmm? I have to watch it. And it grows, I have to pick it. I have to wash it, I have to cut it, I have to cook it, hmm? then I have to place it on my tongue. And all this, this guy just sitting here doing nothing, <laughs> just growling, when will I eat? When will I eat? Hmm. That's all he does. Hmm? But when, I, when, it, when, when all the other parts of the body and mind give the food to the stomach, then he redistributes it everywhere, hmm? mystically, in a way that no other part of the body could. Therefore, the center is also a servant, properly understood. He has his role to take, but by taking, he's giving. Hmm? So to give unconditionally, we have to find that center. That is what it meant by Krishna. That's why Krishna is depicted in that way. Experience that. He's the center, the enjoyer. Hmm? Now we have to learn to give to that center without any expectation of return, something like that. We have expectations. that We are suffering, so we have expectations. I'm kind of motivated. I'd like to serve Krishna and, you know, I'd like to end a little, end a little some suffering too, you know. I mean, that's reasonable. People are, but gradually we come in the path of bhakti. Suffering is, becomes, of a material life uh, is really based on attachment. Hmm? So attachment is severed as attachment for, for bhakti develops and so forth. So, so yeah, I mean, karma is, 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 uh, is, is very much uh, misunderstood. Good or bad karma is, is a problem in the ultimate sense. And it's not that by doing good karma we'll get bhakti. Bhakti only comes from bhakti. Hmm? Um, therefore, you can find people with really bad karma somehow get bhakti also. And they start from down there, hmm, so to speak. And... Pardon me? Like a dedicated to stealing? Like no, well, yeah, kind of, I suppose. Uh, you could, when they say, let's divide it evenly and give some to Krishna. You know, there are thieves like that in India, you know. <laughs> 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 yeah.
No, I mean that people may be, you know, um, uh, really under the influence of bad karma and engaged in things that are really counterproductive and so forth, but still they may, by sadhu sangha, by good association, they may get inspiration for bhakti, and they can start there. It's not that they have to do something else in order to qualify themselves for bhakti. All they need is to get that inspiration, that initial impulse of faith, and, and they can go. They may take a little longer, <laughs> given depending on where where you start from, but does that help? Mm-hmm. Something, yeah. So, you know. So, if Lila is part of that uh, a connection in terms of if I'm hearing God's over here, there has to be some kind of movement for... Connection. Connection for that mm-hmm. love to be this love and for it to all be yeah. the same. Is Lila the connection? Well, Bhakti is the, is the, is the connection. Mm-hmm. And bhakti, in the end, so to speak, in its culmination, turns into lila, which is actually then a reciprocal relationship. So now, in theory, let's say you take Krishna. Okay, Krishna is a theological person to you. Hmm? But in a certain point in bhakti, when the, when the seva, the service, the bhakti, reaches the point of lila, the theological person becomes a real person, more real than 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 we are, materially speaking. Hmm? So Leela is kind of the culmination of bhakti, and yet yeah, that is the context, if, we, if you will, in which the reciprocal dealings of, and, and, and love proper with the Absolute uh, transpires. Hmm? So it's the experience, maybe? Yeah, ultimately the experience is, 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 is Leela. But there will be lesser experiences before you experience Leela. Hmm? The lesser experiences will be other things disappearing that are not helpful. Hmm? Another another thing that will come is better understanding, which you're trying to get right now, of what your what bhakti actually constitutes and what what it's all about. That will be hmm. You're getting somewhere. Hmm? Orient proper orientation because if you orient yourself properly, you're better equipped to tread the path. Right. So. Some education is required, some letting go of things, and that will come become apparent, and you'll have the power to do so in the context of bhakti. And then, as I said last night, I think what was medicine starts to become food. Hmm? It was medicine to chant. Now it's becoming food. I, 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 I'm tasting this, this sweetness. You see, in the name, Krishna, everything is there. The name is the form, qualities, and Leela is present in the name. So the name, first thing it does in, in mantra, meditation on the name, it, it, it clears the mind, it clears the, the heart of other impediments, desires, and so forth, and, and so on. And then the name starts to kind of personify and dance in the heart, if you will. And the form of God... Hmm, one has experience of that, and then qualities, transcendental qualities, relationship ensues, and one enters into Leela. So Leela has been depicted in art and in story and so forth in some of the texts. You find in Leela, you find this is, a, this is a, a, a way of trying to describe it. You've got this God is depicted as completely youthful, Krishna. His color is called Sham. See in the pictures of Krishna? It's kind of bluish black. It's called sham. It corresponds, all the colors correspond with different emotions. 
in Indian aesthetics. So sham is the color of romantic love. Oh, he's the color of romantic love. Hmm? And um, he plays the flute. The flute is kind of like this, this most the perfect instrument is the voice, I would say, the human voice. And the flute is like the closest thing to that because so something like that is uh, the idea and he's and Krishna is depicted not with a big uh, in, in with a peacock feather for a crown and his ornaments with different ointments from the earth and very uh, it means a very for the for the if the finite is to meet the infinite the infinite has to appear in a finite like form otherwise you can't get close if I was to say to you I'm not, but if I was to say, I'm God, and you believe me, you'd kind of like, okay, oh my God. You'd be like, like this. So if, if I was God and I wanted to have intimate relationship with you, I'm the infinite, the closer you get to me, the more you realize how finite you are, and the more it re- kind of pushes you back in a sense. So I have to conceal my infiniteness and take a finite-like appearance in order for there to be intimacy. This is, this is Krishna Leela. So that we find in that Krishna Leela, depicted in art and so forth and in, 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 in stories, in the texts, we find, what we find substantially there is we find, we're talking about the heart of the mystic, so the love of the mystic. We're finding all kinds of love have expression there, not just compassionate love for those who are suffering, but all kinds of love. Like you might have compassionate love, but you also love your friend. You love your, your lover, you love your kids. So these are types of love, parental love, fraternal love, the love of the servant for the master, and so forth. So all these things have expression with the absolute in Leela. So although it's depicted you know, in an Indian kind of context and so forth, cows and so what's really being depicted there is, is all possibilities of love with the absolute, just like you might love a friend, like we really tight. Hmm? Or in the acme, if you will, like you would love a secret lover hmm? with real passion and so with that kind of intensity. All these, in transcendence, there's this movement between the, the, the atma and the paramatma, the, the, the small soul and the big soul, that has a semblance of such kind of love like we have here that's experienced, but it's off center and therefore. Can't, isn't enduring. Hmm? So the Leela seeks to, to couch and explain and express and give, give vent to these, we call them bhavas. Hmm? Sakya bhava, madhuja bhava, vatsalya bhava. For help of understanding, they're compared to like parental love. Hmm? Imagine being the parent of God, that kind of a feeling. Hmm? That's far out. Hmm? You're, you know, a dependent, or a romantic love with God, or the fraternal love of God. Hmm? So, these things are depicted in the Leela in such a way as to try to. And if we, when we hear under good guidance the Leela and so forth, at a certain point, one of these type of sentiments will start to sprout in our soul, in our self, in our being. Hmm? And then in ecstasy, in bhakti and ecstasy, that will be cultivated, and we enter into that kind of a rapport in lila. It's a very esoteric concept. I think we should rest there. <laughs> and.
we're going to meet again tonight. So tonight we'll just have questions. I hope to see you then and um, and have one more session with you. Appreciate all your time. Thank you very much. Thank you.